la frente marchita, las nieves del tiempo platearon mi cielo. So hello and welcome back to the Wild Orgasmic Wisdom podcast, where we explore the infinite web of consciousness underlying all things. I'm your host and quantum priestess, Kimberly Baudet, and today I have the rare pleasure of introducing someone who has influenced me for many years. She's a woman that I look up to, and among her many talents, she is an artist, writer, actress, tarot reader, and teacher, French translator, and she's the co-author of the book, The Way of the Tarot. Her newest book is titled Tarot Pa A Pa, which I believe translates to Tarot Step by Step. Exactly. And I'd like to welcome Marianne Costa to the show. Welcome, Marianne. Hello. I like the concept of orgasmic tarot. Let's try to make tarot orgasmic today. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Anything orgasmic is welcome by me. <laughs> Wonderful. I came to the right moment. <laughs> so, what do you want to know? All right. Well, let's start with kind of an impossible question. I'd like okay. to start with an impossible question. I love questions. those. <laughs> So for you in this moment, with what you've learned so far, what is tarot? Uh, it's a game. Always was, always will be. And uh, it's interesting because it started out in the uh, 1040s, around like the, the, the oldest tarots we know are from 1,440 uh, uh, 1440 and between 440 and 470 and they were made in Italy they were actually not really tarot cards they were bigger cards like you know it's the same difference that you I mean the tarot cards are basically the size of a smartphone and those were more like the size of a tablet and they were hand painted and they had gold and silver to it so we don't even know if people were actually playing with them they were found uh uh, uh, and in the possessions of the Visconti Dukes of Milan. And some people like to think that they were the first existing tarot games. And some other people, uh, and that's more like my opinions, like to think that they were already a copy from a pre-existing game. We know that the card games arrived at the end of the 13th century in Europe. And I think they already had an initiatic background because you know choosing four um colors or i don't know how you call them the uh i don't i don't remember the name in english like you know there were the wands and uh the and the, the swords and uh the coins oh, yeah, the, the cups and the suits that's it and uh so in the in southern europe you had those suits which remain in the tarot and in northern europe the french actually invented the diamonds and the hearts and the spades and uh, the flowers. So this this was already a very like bubbling field. And uh, I think that the four suits were already like four realms mm. because the time of like the late middle age and the beginning of the Renaissance was extremely symbolic. And there was also Pythagoras numerology that was still very active, this philosophy and mystic of the numbers, so numbers from one to ten, and then there were the court cards in the first games you only had in the south of Europe, you only had male court cards, and it coincides both with the military hierarchy and with uh, the spiritual hierarchy, like the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
or even the Islamic hierarchies of the uh, disciple and the sheikh or, or, you know, the guide and the prophet who is the closest to God. So I think card games were already like, like actually every each and every game that humanity has produced is always has always been a mandala and it's a way of representing the world except that then it's used to fight and you know make money and like trick other people which is also the great game that, that we play among ourselves so when the tarot arrives it has uh, a specific suit that's very interesting that is called the triumphs it's going to turn into the word that we don't necessarily adore today in English because it's Trump. But <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, the Trump cards. Yes, the Trump cards, which is like short for triumph, actually. I mean, we, you know, we have a very strong example of the materialistic aspects of that kind of triumph today in the United States. And I don't blame that, but I mean, the notion of triumph or Trump was actually the notion of like trumping the four realms of the, of the four suits. So obviously in, in the 15th, early 15th century, whatever was able to trump anything else was not to, you know, be the biggest or the strongest or the more, most cruel or anything because they had plenty of that. It was this notion of what is, what can gain victory over death, over the deepest, darkest emotions, and also over blindly falling in love or over losing a child, which was, you know, the everyday life of a society that was much less um, like dwelling in comfort than we actually are. So there's this big, huge like discussion between uh, historians and, and academics who do not believe that the tarot cards were ever made as a device for fortune telling, which they are not, by the way. And the people who read the Torah or use them as a means of playing with fate, destiny, the process of questioning, um, playing with the idea of coming to see someone and, 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 you know, depositing our deepest doubts and questions to the feet, not of the person themselves, but of a process that the person will maybe like um, coach or, or embrace and help us develop. And there's not really any um, opposition between the game at the table where, you know, kings and queens are fighting each other from, from one realm to the other and where the 10 tops the eight or vice versa because there's so many different games. Or where the Trumps, which might be this like immortal dimension within us, can trump any other cards. And the fact of tarot reading today. So in the 19th century, all, the, all of the occult movements that were directly born from the, the very strict and rigid industrial revolution and bourgeois society. And I mean, Europe in, in its whole and France mostly was like thirsting for mysticism and mystery and and a way of like you know escaping this huge patriarchal technocratic movement towards like colonizing the world and building you know faster and faster machines and making more and more and more money which has found its blossoming in today's society 
And so the occult movement, the occultist movements, who were quite crazy, by the way, but they were the first, the beginning of this like underground resistance. It was very masculine at the time. It was basically men, Freemasons, um, former priests like Eliphas Levy, who was like the great student of magic, but trying to kind of counter the movement, the, this huge movement of the Euro European technical and, and industrial re revolution. And they, because the game of Tarot itself had basically fallen out of fashion, uh, they started studying it as a book of wisdom, which it is not because a book are pages bound together and the tarot are like cards separated from one another. But it was this idea of finding, I don't know, mysteries from the ancient Egypt. Tarot has nothing to do with ancient Egypt. I'm really, I mean, the traditional French tarot known as the Tarot of Marseille. Then you can build or design a tarot on anything. I would love that someone makes a tarot of like dicks and vaginas or something like that, or, you know, just <laughs> follow up in the orgasmic. Like, it probably actually exists right now. There's tarots of dogs and cats. So why not Kabbalah or, you know, or, or ancient Egypt, but basically the game of tarot that has remained to this day as the standard of the tarot of Marseille is based basically on a Christian and Islam and like underlying is Islamic mysticism, Christian hermeticism. It doesn't even have the crazy animals like the unicorns and stuff from the, oh, this is my phone ringing. I don't, I told you I was talking to you. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I can just sit back and just sit back and like try to take it all in. <laughs> okay. So let's take this again, you know, yeah. So obviously the tarot is a device that emerges from a culture which is mainly Christian, I wouldn't say Catholic, Christian, with the Christian hermeticism, with all these movements around the, the Renaissance that are like uh, a little bit esoteric, I'm not saying occult, esoteric in the sense of looking inside, looking to the hidden aspects of the religious traditions, the, the Islamic mysticism is very present. There are theories according to which the actual game of cards came from the Islamic world. It's not very likely because the 1001 Knights do not mention the game of cards. They might have been Armenian. We don't know. But long story short, the occult movements from the 19th century begin to invent the craziest myth about the Torah. And, and it's supported by this desire of like countering the world as it is in that moment. But we we received the heritage of their insanity. I mean, if you look at it, I'm really sorry. I know in the United States, people love the Rider-Waite Tarot, but the Rider-Waite Tarot is the emanation from a very unhealthy secret society where they basically fought together for 15 years. And it's copied from, from a decorative alchemical tarot from the 15th century, if I'm not mistaken, which is called the Sola Busca Tarot. You can find it online at the Pinacoteca in, in Milan. And they basically started creating, I mean, it was New Age before the New Age, but with a bit of Satanist kind of twist. They started building this, this Tarot, which doesn't really make sense, where all the swords are like pointing down and hurting you. I don't play a game where... 14 cards of swords are basically dooming me to being unhappy or anything. I mean, 
I don't want to touch a tarot that's not going to have the capacity for being absolutely positive if I am situated in, in a place of myself and in a place of my life where any card I pick can have actually an initiatic and um, positive in the sense of not being like crushed by fate, but really going with the flow kind of meaning. So this was a really long answer to your question, but yes, Tarot is a game that has underwent a series of transformations. The rules for the card games have, have the card game of Tarot have changed uh, uh, throughout the, the, the years and centuries where it was really fashionable. The game of Tarot is, is still played in France, as you probably know. And then the rules or the prepositions for reading or consulting or whatever fortune telling the cards are still extremely varied. I mean, there's people who will with no have no problem in giving you advice and telling you you have to leave that man and you will have a car accident and stuff like that. And I mean, live and let live. I don't work like that. But if some people really, truly, deeply believe that they have the capacity to see the future and want to do that, and if people want to buy that kind of, you know, advice or moment with, with someone, why not? And then there's the wide variety, especially in the last 20 to 40 years, of people who actually play with the tarot as a, I would call it, storytelling device where what we put into the play is I'm here and I know the cards and I will try to answer your questions in a way that fits your inner world, that will help you take a step in the direction you like. But also I will probably like give you some input from my own life, from who I am, because I am playing with you and you are free to accept that or not. It's more like a dance. And also the person that is questioning, that is asking the tarot, according to the depth of the question, according to their willingness to open up and um, actually like question their life and their fate, the reading will be completely different. I don't really call it reading anymore, just because this mm -hmm. whole metaphor of the book is kind of like, I mean, it's more like an architecture. It's like elements, you know, there's this game for kids called the Kaplas, the little pieces of wood that the children like put on yeah. top of one another. I have a stepson now, so now I know. I didn't used to be a mother, but I fell in love with a guy who has a six-year-old son and we just, I just adore him and he adores me. So I'm learning to play. So it's like a, a Kapla game. You, you put stuff on top of one another and you try to make it stick and work. And then you fold it back into its box. So it's a game and it's a book and it's elements for architecture and it's a series, it's an encyclop encyclopedia of symbols. And it's also for me, it's, it's um, a means, it's a, man, it's, it's, it's a mandala that allows us to look at the anatomy of our soul and at the anatomy of the invisible world and at the anatomy of the visible world. I mean, if you bring a tarot to a museum the tarot will talk about the museum in a way that will surprise you. Do that at the Uffizi Museum in Florence, for instance, with, the, with Italian painting from the late Middle Ages and, and beginning of the Renaissance, and you will be flabbergasted because it fits. But then bring the tarot to a firm and, and bring it to counseling 
you know, the corporate world, and it works. Bring it to a choreograph who wants to know something about their next show and, and how to work with his or her dancers, it's going to work. Bring it to hypnosis, it's going to work. Bring it to storytelling, like traditional storytelling, it's going to super work. Bring it to a musician and it's going to work. My recent play, I love tango, I dance tango and I sing tango. And uh, my recent play with Toro is to find traditional tango songs that fit the mood of, of the major arcanas of the Trumps that were named the major arcanas in the 19th century. It so works. It was like I gave a little um, presentation of my book and, and there was a guitarist the other day and we, we, we had prepared a couple of songs. I didn't know which ones I would, you know, take out from the hat. And it's incredible because even, I mean, one card like the lovers, which is actually the lover, where you see the sun and in front of the sun, there's a little like Eros, little Puto, little angel. A little cherub guy. Yeah, a little like baby, baby loving, baby crazy loving love God. And underneath you have three people apparently two women and one man in the center and they're interconnected. They're touching each other. You cannot really decide whether he has to choose between one woman and the other or whether he's with his mother and she's bringing him to meet his fiance or whether it's a mother with her son and daughter or anything else. It is very ambiguous. And there's songs like that, that talk about bonding and being separated and, you know, or, I mean, I'm not going to go on and on about the Toro and the Tango, which is something I could talk about for like about 15 hours in a row, but I'm not going to do that to you. But my point is, Taho is a great playmate. It's going to play with anything. And it's going to do it with a spine. And the spine is both the symbolic coherence that it does have. Again, I'm talking about the Toro of Marseille, the traditional Toro produced by the French craftsmen for like four to five centuries in a row. And it's going to do it with a spine that is its numerological coherence. It has a lot of intertwined um, coherences between level four, like any card that is a four of any suit or uh, the, the number four in the, in the trumps, but also the number 14, they belong to this level four and they have an incredible quality of embodying the stability and the solidity of number four, for instance. So it has this, the tarot has this sense of not being a random device. It can be a randomizing device, but from a very organized, very organic, very benevolent playing structure that can represent the world at its best and thus represent anything that can go wrong in the world, which is the game, the play, the lila, like the Hindus say. So that was my short answer to your difficult question. <laughs> wow. Beautiful. Do you like it? I loved it. I loved it. And you, I had so many other questions pop up into my head while you were speaking, and I, I didn't try to keep any of them because I just wanted to be totally present with what you were saying. That's okay. Now, so I'll play with very short answers. I'll, I'll no, give me no, 10 no. questions, and I will give you 10 short answers in a row. It's, yeah. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, I love these long answers. I think it's beautiful, and uh, I think our listeners just want to take it in like me. I think okay. that's how I feel. Yeah. Um, 
Wow. Yeah. I love that frame of think of speaking of it as a game mm. that just, it's, it just feels so open. It feels so safe. Mm. feels like I can really have a relationship with the tarot yeah. that is playful. Um, and I also, I started to ask myself the question of how do I treat the tarot? Because I think there's this odd concept that you have to be afraid of the tarot or so respectful that you don't even want to touch the tarot. And that's really not at all what you're saying here. No, I mean, the fear comes from the, the whole world of future telling, where people come with fear and hope mixed. And it's a very narrow kind of attitude, because if you go to someone to get the answer, you can only get a yes or a no, basically. You can only get, get a, an answer that tells you you're doomed or an answer that tells you it's going to be okay. So that, that's how fear works. It, it works on a very um, uh, binary, linear basis. And we know that the truth of human life is not that. The truth of human life is 50% of the things basically are in favor of what your mind wants, your mind and heart. I mean, you're like the, what Gurdjieff calls the machine, the structure of survival that we all carry within, it wants a series of things. It wants, a, well, basic stuff. We want a safe home. We want not to be sick ever. We want not to die ever. We want to be loved and not to really have to effort in order to love in return. Uh, we want food. We want to be able to eat any kind of food we like at any moment without any consequences. I mean, we all kind of really want that. If anyone is listening and says, oh, no, I don't want that. You're either a saint and I really want to know you because you're going to be my spiritual teacher from now on or you're deluding yourself. So, you know, it's up to you to, to know. So from a kind of a healthy functioning of the machine, when I say healthy, it's it's fundamentally unhealthy from the point of view of like awakening and the, the essential being and stuff, but let's stay, you know, on, on the ground. So any normally neurotic human being basically wants a series of things and does not want a series of other things. And life is very generous because it provides about 50% of what you want and 50% of what you don't want. <laughs> That's how it works. And in the end, we all die anyway. So, I mean, and, <laughs> and, we, and we can die more or less peacefully according to a series of very deep reasons, actually, because some of the ways that some of the things that come up, even if we have the kind of peaceful death where we are sick, but not suffering too much and surrounded with people we love, we can, I mean, people who die like that, and they're very lucky that they're able to die like that, they can have some very strong uh, whiffs of old fears or old refusal strategies coming up. And it's never a completely smooth process. So, you know, the Tibetan Buddhists are basically telling us that our job is to learn to die. And that was what the French philosopher Montaigne also said. And I kind of agree with that. So on the one hand, the Tarot is one of the many means we have in order to learn to die, which is a way of learning to live, which is enjoying whatever is goes our way in, in the way we want and enjoying it without trying to like cling to it like crazy because that's suffering and how to smoothly surf as smoothly as possible anything that's not going the way I want to like I don't know like my mother had 
a stroke and now she can't find her words and she can't drive a car. That's my story. And she seems very unhappy about that. Of course I'm not happy about that. But how can I be with that situation in a way that I do not overinvest myself, in a way that I don't shrink away from my mom, in a way where I can be with her in a very um, honest and open way and say, how are you dealing with this? Yes, right now you're scared. Oh, you're really bad-mouthing your like, 30-year-old boyfriend who still is not her husband because my mom is quite the hippie but he's doing his best you know and uh, okay so now you can spit on you can like badmouth him for 15 minutes i'll be listening and when she's done i'm like you want some coffee uh, you know trying ways of dealing with the situations that's apparently extremely painful that are ways that are life-oriented life positive life giving i don't want to sound too californian but like you know that are that are, that have life to them and and we have an example of that with some people who die gracefully age gracefully suffer gracefully go through a divorce gracefully go through a terrible accident gracefully have a physical handicap gracefully so the trump the the, the triumph the atout, it has all, is the way it's called in French. Atout, the, the one that has it all. Uh, oui. That's the part of us that is okay with the truth. And by being okay with the truth, you can already like, and that's exactly, you can already let, let go of the fear, let go of the refusal. So you can let go of a lot of what is making things worse. And I think that's one of the ways that the tarot became uh, like a frightening device is that people came to it without that kind of we can call it education education in the sense it's a very simple education everybody knows that life gives us about 50% of both you know uh, tastes except we would love it to be otherwise. And some people are trying very hard to make it otherwise. So there's a price to pay for that. And the price is either to make people suffer or to live in fear or to cling to your possessions. So I, I, I don't want to live like that. So that's for the fear aspect. And then for the reverence, I would say, yes, there is some aspect of reverence. But like you, the kind of reverence you have for the body of the person you are intimate with, hopefully, in a non-pornographic society, which I still hope to see, you know, uh, it's like the promised land to kind of finally emerge from the global pornography. We have a pornographic attitude towards everything. So, yes, of course, you rever the... Uh, the, the, the body of the, in our case, I know you're married, right? Happily married. Yeah, married now. Thank of you. the man you love. Uh, you have reverence for a musical instrument that you play. You have reverence for, you know, the child that you feed. That kind of respect. You can have reverence for an orchid that gives you the great pleasure of blossoming again in your home or for a rose you just bought to just put on the table. So that kind of very sober, very, uh, very um, 
contained and very uh, silent reverence. I do treat my tarot like that. I don't. I used to. I mean, Jodorowsky, who was my main teacher, uh, gave us um, the uh, because Jodorowsky was a theater director in his youth and then a cinema director. So he has this very theatrical, cinematographic ways of working with things. So he, at one time in his life, I didn't know him then. That was like almost like 35 years ago. He would dress only in violet. Not because like Milton, Her you know, Milton Erickson only saw violet because he had Daltonism. In the case of Jodorowsky, it was chosen because violet was the mystic color. So when I met him in, in the late 90s, he still had like violet socks and purple <laughs> shirts that were really kind of weird. And he even had one pair of, of violet glasses. He lost the whole thing afterwards. But, <laughs> and so one of the things he did was we, you, have to, you had to have violet silk and read, read the tarot on violet silk. Well, okay, well, that was all very nice, but I mean, you can create the same quality as violet silk with your gestures, with your intention, with a disposition of the heart inside that goes. Because, you know, you get, I mean, I've, I, I've been reading the tarot since I was, or playing with the tarot since I was 17. There was an interruption between 20 and 30 that I might talk about. And then I'm at Jodo and I'm 53 now. I just turned 53. So, uh, so it's been a companion my whole life. And as in any long marriage, sometimes you, you, you have the temptation of getting bored or taking the other for granted. So this notion of reactivating the respect and the love and the gratitude and a very simple way of taking care of, of your tarot deck or decks because some people have various decks. I do. I have. I love historical tarot, and the standard of Marseille has produced a series. I mean, we have a series of facsimiles of of um, very beautiful ancient Marseille decks. So one of the silent things I do is I put the cards back in their numeric order. So I put, you know, the 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 fool and then. Uh, Trump 1, Trump 2, Trump 3, and I top it all with Trump 21, which is the world, a naked mm -hmm. woman dancing inside an oval. And if I'm very, very, very uh, in, in a very deeply devotional mood, I even put the, the, the pip cards <laughs> in order to, I don't always do because it takes much longer because they're 78 in total. No but that's one of the ways. So it's that kind of reverence. But then, I mean, you know, Shuffling the cards, I don't really shuffle them, I mix them because I don't want to put them upside down. Because again, putting the cards upside down is an easy way of declaring them positive or negative. And it can be interesting in a pedagogical period where you don't know how to interpret the cards. But I think it's the reading itself that says what is stuck and what is fluid. So I like to teach my students. I have a few groups that I teach in various countries, and I like to teach them how to observe what is stuck and what is flowing in their lives, what happens when we're stuck, and, and some very subtle aspect of, of stuckedness, like even minimalistic tensions in the body, even minimalistic judgments about the color of someone's blouse or the way they do their hair. And that's stuckedness. And the more we know the stuck, the better we know how to 
let things flow and then they find their right next step which mm. is exactly what the tarot is about to help any given situation find a way to relax into a movement that is sustained by the formidable intelligence of life which is so much greater than Marianne Costa's intelligence. Who am I to tell people what their solution is? I'm trying to look with them at ways of letting life in its magnificence take care of the question. And that was a long answer again. <laughs> and another very beautiful answer. And I just have so many images and, and just this concept of knowing the thing. Mm being the solution to allowing it to flow. It's, there's so many, um, there are so many comparisons I can make like massage therapy, like you touch yeah. the muscle and it, and it releases just from having that contact Absolutely. and just to speak a difficulty in your life, it starts to heal or unwind or the subconscious mind starts to kind of unravel it. Yeah. yeah, it's not just just to speak. It's sometimes to have someone, for instance, if I'm the tarot reader and this woman comes to me and she's 60 something and she was raised with two sisters and they were like one thick like unit of three sisters and she's the middle sister and their mom did not want to have children. She wanted to be a painter. So instead of becoming a professional painter, she kind of like let the three girls raise themselves. She was painting, but she would never bring her paintings out, you know, in, the, in any kind of exhibition. And she would be a nice mom because she would cook, and she, but she didn't really give them her attention. So that's the situation. So in the reading, I get the situation quite quickly. I am a, a trained psychologist, so that helps, but anyone can work from their own perspective. And then this woman has come initially because she, now her mother is has passed away, so has her dad, and there's a conflict between the sisters. And from her thinking that she wants to go back to a harmonious relationship with the sisters, which the sisters do not want, because they need this time apart. Because sometimes a moment of conflict, if it's not violent, is a necessary moment. You have to rest from, you have to kind of dissociate from some very, very tight um, bonds in order to find a freer bond at some, mm -hmm. at some, in some way. So that woman who came to see me, for instance, she was the neutralizing element. She was the Charlie Watts in the Rolling Stones kind of element. She was the one in the middle that nobody really cared about. She should have been the boy, of course, bigger sister, smaller sister. She's the boy in the middle, except she's not. And, um, She's the one gaining a lot of weight. She's the one living through her son's achievements. These are all like, you know, elements that say that she's, she keeps, she kind of clings to this identity of, I should have been the son, like that she could let go of. And we can talk about that afterwards. And the bigger sister, she's the bossy one. And the little sister, she's the victim. And so now my consultant, she wants to, be bossier than the bossy and she wants the little sister to look at her also as someone who was a victim. That's not going to work or that's not going to work in a harmonious way. So she doesn't know that when she comes to see me and I do listen to her and I do listen to her saying how much she wants her sister to be friends with her again, etc. But in the back of my mind, I am seeing the situation from a point of view that is 
not caught in her machine. You know, so what I see is three girls in a pretty good family because they were never hungry, no one abused them, but with a missing element that is individuation of each of them and the contact with a mother who really, really wants to be a mother. And so then it's a, it's a training. You have to learn how to very softly from what you see in the cards, because that all came from the cards, kind of like question the person, have them state what was the situation in the past, suggest things in an open way. And you know, in the end, the woman went away and she just wanted to go take a dancing class or, you know, and, I, and she said, but I'm not creative. And I just gave her very simple advice. I said, open up. I said, I said, yes, your family was wonderful. And they gave you a castle. But there is a couple of, there are a couple of rooms that are locked in the castle. And that's also your heritage. So you have to be untrue to your heritage and open up those doors which have to do with your femininity. You're not going to do that in a moment. I know she has a shrink. I mean, I, I'm not like sending her out in the nature. And I said, just do one little packed protocol with yourself. You just stay open to whatever message could arrive in the morning when you wake up or at night when you go to sleep. It's very lightweight, very lightweight. And it's, but it's not just from her talking it's a suggestion you know and uh, and she actually came twice the first time we we looked at how she could you know I, I supported exactly like you said in the massage the like oh how could it get better with my sisters and mm -hmm. I said oh create an altar with pictures of your sisters and then she came back a month after and said I was too lazy to pick pictures from my sisters. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And she was like, I actually don't care about my sister. I was like, yeah. <laughs> because of course I could see that from moment one. And in a year or a couple of years, they will again be good friends. But, but you know, many people don't have the information, for instance, that family, healthy family relationships are actually just like relationship with strangers except you have different memories from common events in store. That's it. You don't have to keep playing the role or the character that they know you as. And sometimes people just need to disconnect from one another for a while because the character really sticks to your skin and it's sticky and it's like, bleh. it's disgusting and it's, it's too tight and you just don't want it anymore. So in my case, I have studied psychology, transpersonal psychology, transgenerational psychology, the family tree. I've worked with that a lot. So of course it intervenes in my tarot readings. But some of my students, they're hypnotherapists or they're musicians. One is a drag queen and he does an amazing show and they read from who they are. Anything else? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, you did. You started to go down a path. And I think I'd like to ask you another question on that path, which is that because I actually had this question in my head before I spoke to you. And then, I, I, of course, it came out of your mouth before I asked. Um, so you told me you've been interacting with Tara since you were 17. Yeah. 
And so this really is a long-term relationship for you. Yep. It really is some like a marriage. Um, I wonder if you wanted to speak more about your first impressions of tarot or how yep. that relationship has moved. I, I come from a rather bourgeois family, not super rich, but like intellectual bourgeois. My dad worked for the French parliament, for the Assemblée Nationale, and he was like a high-ranked high civil servant. My mom's parents were like, her, her dad was the director of a high school and her mom was educated. She has six children, so she stopped working, but she was a literature teacher. So I come from that kind of very French background, no nonsense, like moderately Catholic, you know, that kind of like, there's not much beyond like the, 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 the most far out thing is art. And that's like, you know, the, the great divinities like literature or painting, the reverence to culture and stuff like that. So I grew up in that. I was studying literature. So all of that was pretty mainstream-ish, except my mom had was kind of the hippie. Even she, yeah, she was born in 43. So, so she's from that generation. And most of her friends were younger because she started going to like theater classes and then she dragged my dad into like playing doing cabaret shows and stuff like that so that was kind of weird but still contained you know bohemian bourgeois kind of thing and but psychologically my parents were children they got married because my mom was pregnant she was 22 he was 23 they were from this very strict bourgeoisie of the like they lived like two hours away from Paris. That was like unbreathable. Like there's this movie by Buñuel, which is called The Discreet Charm of, of, of Bourgeoisie, which really describes this atmosphere in the 60s. So, you know, I was born into a, a family that was not mystical, that that was not very visual. Visual arts were not much of a part of my training, were more like musicians and academics, more like. And uh, the my first connection with the Tarot was that my father was very classically, very Frenchly, leave, leaving my mother for a woman 15 years her, <laughs> you know, younger than she was when I was like 17. And my mom was really outraged, even though she had done her share of like, you know, <laughs> moving around the, ble <laughs> the blessed 80s of the old hippies. And uh, and my mom was my mom was lost. She was really in distress, and my dad was also completely going completely crazy. And I had I was supposed to go through the baccalauréat and all the stuff you do in order to enter the university. So my mom gave me this book where you could read. It was really a, a fortune telling kind of like manual where you would read the the playing cards. And somehow I think because I was in love with languages in general. I learned English very easily. I learned Italian without even studying it. I had a book that my grandfather had given me, which was the Magnificat of Virgin Mary translated into 162 different languages by the missionaries. And I would study, it was also in like Egyptian hieroglyphs and in Japanese. So I loved studying the alphabets and the different words. And I tried to understand the structure of the languages. I was like eight, I was a bit crazy. So I've always <laughs> loved languages. And when the language of the cards came into my life, I was like, wow, that's interesting. And I started reading also because I had to distract myself from the basically the tragedy that was happening at home. It was a really, really mean divorce. and. Um, and because I was 
talkative as I still am and because I think I did have a good heart even if I was kind of crazy at the time people came kept coming to me and I didn't ask for money or anything I was just reading you know and one thing happens is that when you say that you can read cards people will like rush to you there's a general attraction for that and even the people who are like oh no no way no way it's it's negative attraction no one is really neutral in front of the notion of fortune telling and cards reading. So I did that. I cultivated that from 17 all the way into my 21 years old. And it was a very um, unstable period in my life. My dad brought his 25-year-old um, girlfriend into the house. She was pretty moody. So she kicked me out at some point and I had to go live in my grandfather's apartment. And my grandfather had just died. And he had died after eight years of being severely depressed. So there was like a very heavy atmosphere in the house. I started to have nightmares. And the more nightmares I had, the more, you know, tarot decks I bought. And the more I was trying to play with the magic, which is something that teenagers like to do. I think it's connected with the coming of age kind of like energy, you know, trying to maybe... I've never really thought about it, but it's also the idea of emerging from the ideology of the family and, and, and like recurring to a magical or unreal world in order to stabilize some of our, our inner mythology or something. And I had become quite good at reading the cards and I loved reading the playing cards. It's what my, it was my favorite, which is interesting because the playing cards are what are known as, known as the minor arcanas in the tarot. And one of my specialties and the specialty of my new book is the capacity of reading with the whole tarot and not just the famous major arcana. And uh, at some point it became really heavy. Like women who were twice my age came to see me for very deep emotional difficulties in their relationships. There was one woman who was dying of cancer and was seeking advice with me. And then at some point, my grandf- my my uh, other grandfather got became really sick, and um, and I quote unquote saw in the cards that he would die. Of course, it was my heart telling me, but at the time I didn't have that kind of information. And at some point, I threw all my decks to the garbage. Uh, one day, I threw them all away, and I said, "I'm not going to touch cards anymore until." I have the revelation that this is a book of wisdom. I must have had read that somewhere, but I remember a very deep and very definite notion that I wasn't mature enough and that I wasn't solid enough and that I didn't have the key to understanding the Torah. It was kind of an intuition. And I do think that, you know, the Torah is a field. And you can say a field in the rational sense, but it's also a field of knowledge, a field of energy, a field of people's interest and attention. And as such, we can consider it a being, like jazz is a being, for instance, to come back to a musical metaphor. So I think this being actually communicates with us, you know, like some kinds of music call some kinds of people. It doesn't necessarily have to have a defined spiritual lineage in order to do that. That's what that's what spiritual lineages do. They call the adepts. I, I'm talking traditional, true 
abso with absolute integrity kind of spiritual lineages. I'm talking the bowls of Bengal and how, you know, a great singer like Parvati Baul got called by the Baul music and then met her guru teacher. And then, I mean, very, very deep centuries old kind of lineage strength. Of course, jazz or tarot don't actually have that, but they do have a sense of discipline. They do have a sense of reverence from the people practicing them. So there's this possibility for, you know, receiving a call and, and also making one's way into theater or any kind of music or dance or tarot, which is also an art or astrology or martial art or probably massage, which is more like your field in a way that has deep, solid, intrinsic dignity. And that can be also um, a kind of a bridge towards deeper and more directly sacred activities. That's, that's the way tarot worked with me. So I let it go for almost 10 years. I studied the, the Chinese I Ching because it had Confucianism behind it. It has the Jungian translation behind it. It did have, you know, its, its, its credentials, you say that? Like its pedigree, you know, yeah. it's like, like it had solid credits behind it. It's legitimate, it. yeah. Yeah. And at some point, a friend of mine in 1997, I think, said to me, oh, I met this man, Jodorowsky, and he's doing tarot readings in a cafe. He used to do that at the time. And he saved my life. And I said, how did he do that? And she said, well, he read the cards for me. And then he said, she was very depressed at the time. She had been dumped by her lover and she was really, really not doing well. And then he said to me, do you dare to turn the card that's on the top of the, of the deck that you left on the top of the deck? If it is the sun, everything's going to be okay. And she said, I gathered all my strength and I did turn the card. After that, I got to know Jodorowsky very closely, and I knew that what he did was he looked at the card that the person had left under the deck when, when they were shuffling the deck. And if the card has had a meaning that could help the person, he would swiftly shift it up on the top of the deck and, you know, by, a, again, a little theatrical way, like tell them to turn it over. But she had actually chosen that son before. That was the card of the son, the one that she turned. So he was he was cheating in the in the um, uh, in in the uh, ritual. He the, the ritual was kind of like wasn't cheating. It's like you know bettering the sauce or something like when you do a sauce and you pour a little bit of like cognac <laughs> or armagnac in it and everybody's drunk in the end. He tends to do that. I mean, even his autobiographies or or his autobiographic movies now are like that. He you know he presents things as truth and they're absolute like creations from his imagination it's like but the stage his... magician versus yeah. the magician magician exactly that's his that's his style and it has a lot of strength it has a lot of testosterone to it at some point i learned how to do the same thing but i realized i couldn't because i'm an aries in the in the zodiac so i'm like very frontal very straightforward so there i have a weird twist in my mouth when i try to do that and my nostrils start to shake i just can't do it but i admire so i found my own tricks but i think you need i mean if you're an artist you need to have some tricks if, I guess if you're a massage artist, you also have tricks. So his trick was to do that. And she said he saved my life and he has great goodness. 
And I said, I want to see that man. Who is he? I knew him as a uh, comic books author. Not He wasn't the artist, but he wrote the scripts. So, you know, I didn't think very highly of some. Of course, I was the, I was a little princess of literature, so I didn't think very highly of someone who was a comic books author. But I still went. And he, I looked at him reading the, because he did the readings openly. And I looked at him for five minutes and I was like, it was certainty in my whole living body. I was like, he knows. He knows. There's something about his style that I don't quite agree with. And I can see, I, I, I was very intuitive. I could see that there was, he had a tendency to domination and anger. He was a bit manipulative. He was surrounded with, you know, a little court or entourage of people who were like admiring him a little bit too much. And I had to fight with that for the next 15 years because we became a couple after that for nine years. And then we kept on collaborating for six years until these things became a, a very strong element where my style and his got di really deeply divorced. I mean, I still feel huge, uh, like, I, I can't say love because it has an erotic background that's not true anymore, but uh, like care and and great gratitude for him. But I do not, uh, I am not anymore um, okay with some of his style. I would say also because for me there's a lot of it that is very much from the last century that has like you know personality cult and uh, a little bit of machism to, to it that I understand he cannot let go of he's 90 for God's sake but I, I don't want to work like that anymore so Alejandro is a bit like in or out kind of person if you're not in you cannot really be neutral and somebody spits you out and he goes like, ah, you betrayed me, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> but these were beautiful years because I became his student. We became this like completely unlikely couple. We were fighting all the time and we loved the shit out of each other. But it was an unlivable couple that survived for nine years. I was unbearable and so was he. <laughs> and I think he's, I mean, I, I really, I mean, I really... I never did it actually because I didn't find the opportunity to do it, but I deeply apologize to his sons who were older than me because they saw us like, you know, spitting fire all the time, but it did have its reason for being, we were both, I mean, he wrote his best books while we were together. I co-wrote with him two excellent books, The Way of Tarot and the book on metagenealogy. I changed deeply from, I was 30 when I met him and 40 when I left. And I was a much better person at 40 than I was at 30. And uh, and I learned with him. It was really like walking into the sorcerer's hut and basically, you know, eating with him, sleeping with him, serving him because he was a fucking Chilean macho. I haven't seen him cook or clean anything once in the nine years we were together. And also, you know, busting his balls as much as I could without even wanting to. I remember he laughed at me and he said, oh, I'm like your sumo teacher, you know, Jap Japanese sumotori, the way they learn is that they like, they, they throw themselves at the teacher until the teacher falls. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to throw myself at you. So it was very vivid. We, we invested a lot of energy into it. And then the next six years where we were teaching together a lot, people loved to see us teach together. When we separated as a couple and there was no more question of, you know, 
possessivity and everything. And he met Pascal, who is his wife now, and she's really probably the very best person he could ever be with. And I was going my own way and living my own life. We then had this beautiful six years of being deep friends and, and teaching together and playing together. And um, I think we gave the best of what we could give together in that field at that moment. And then the tarot started basically following me because when we when when we uh, published Metagenealogy, the book on the family tree, which was in 2011, Jodorowsky decided that I wasn't going to be in his life anymore in any way. And I said, okay, so maybe I'll just quit doing these things and I'll go back to, you know, writing and translating and doing the things that I'm... And people kept calling me. I never... I don't advertise myself. I'm, I'm lucky enough that I have Jodorowsky's name behind me, so it brings some attention. But I, 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 don't, I don't really like to um, advertise myself. It's not something... I don't know. I, I, I'm not really good at that. And I'm, I'm very afraid of the misunderstandings. When you become a very uh, public person, there's a lot of misunderstandings happening, and I, I don't want to pay the consequences of that. So I have this really uh, comfortable situation where I am, um, where I am uh, kind of known, like I have a little bit of a reputation, and people call me to work, and uh, and that's how I see it as the blessing of the tarot and other things. But I mean, the tarot has brought me a lot of traveling opportunities, great. Um, relationships, some people who betrayed me, and that was interesting too. Some people who really went very, very far over the board, that was interesting too. Some people got really, really crazy, and now they teach in my name, and <laughs> I don't even understand what they do, but I mean, that's the consequence of teaching. I never I never wanted to give diplomas to anyone, for instance, because I know that people are going to do whatever, whatever they want to do. So in a field that doesn't have any rules, I do not create a school. If there were like official rules, I might have a tarot school. Mm -hmm. But I do not want to be the one who sets the rules. That's too much responsibility. It's a game, for God's sake. It, it really is. Fuck yeah. <laughs> I don't know how much time we have, um, but I do at least want to ask you one or two more questions if we have time. Yeah, sure. Um, so I know you do have many English-speaking fans. Like I do. Uh, I'd love. I believe so. Yeah. I'd love that. I don't. I don't know why I don't teach in English. I'm actually. I, I mean, I'm really sending out the message to the world. I would love to do an online seminar in English, even if it were for 15 people. I would love to do that. I love to speak English. Like a third of my very best friends are English-speaking people, and honestly. Whatever I see on the kind of tarot I do, which is the tarot of Marseille and working with the pips, the pip cards also uh, on the internet, whatever I see in that field is doesn't really have the kind of quality that I'm uh, kind of hoping for. And uh, so I interrupted you. Sorry. No, it's okay. I think a lot of people would really love to to do that with you, and I I know people in the United States who would be very very excited about that. So. Mm -hmm. You should talk yeah, about that some more. What I think we need is a structure. I would teach for 15 people. I don't. 
I mean, of course, you need to make a little bit of money from whatever you do, but I'm really not money hungry. Not now. <laughs> you know, I have an apartment. I have enough to live. I don't have a car. I don't care. I go visit friends for my holidays. I'm not like, you know, I'm not greedy at all. So I love the idea of like, yeah, interacting with people who are interested in something. Wonderful. So what about Wonderful. English? So I wanted to, because tarot is not yet translated into English. I'm very excited that I speak French now because it means I can I can sort of yeah. muddle my way through it. Yeah. Um, but since it has not yet been translated into English, we hope it's going to be translated into English soon. Yeah, I, 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 the, the Way of Tarot was translated by a wonderful publisher, which is Inner Traditions, and especially John Graham, who is oh, yeah. our publisher at Inner Traditions. I have not contacted John directly because you know how France is. It's the, your publisher needs to contact another publisher. And the thing is, it's a 480 pages book. Uh, because I don't, you know, I don't write pornography. For me, pornography is a book that sums itself up to three pages and you, it is sold for 150 pages. And that's what usually happens uh, in, in the publishing business right now. So there is a cost of translation. And of course, I'm not like a super blockbuster, whatever, you know. So I'm, I'm, I don't know if it's going to be translated to English. I would love that. And I would be willing to supervise anyone who does it. I, I'm, I should write an email to John and see if Inner Tradition wants it, because if they don't, I might go looking for another publisher. Yeah. Yeah, we, I know I would love it. I know a lot of people who, who would love that as well. So what can you share with an English speaker of what they would find in this book if they could read it well, in French? Well, it's, it's very simple. I, I, it's actually three, three to four books in one. There's a very um, researched uh, first part that is about the history of the Toro of Marseille in particular. Uh, a great American philosopher, uh, uh, Michael Dummett, wrote a lot about the Toro, but he wrote it from the perspective of the history of playing cards, and he wrote it as a lover of Italy. So he was not interested enough in the Toro of Mar Marseille, and he didn't really know anything about the way we uh, researched it by observing the cards and observing the details and observing the numerology, etc. So I thought it was really important to rewrite the history of Tarot from the origins up to our day and to also discuss one of Domet's main uh, theories about the Tarot of Marseille, where he said that the Tarot of Marseille originated in Milan, Italy. And I actually found some proof that this is not true. So it's mm. a very uh, like specific academic um, discussion that I put in the annex of the book because it does not necessarily interest any, you know, the common reader. But it's very important in terms of the study of the Tour of Marseille. And from that historical and iconographic study, I derived um, uh, an explanation of the iconography of the Tarot which begins the next section of the book, which I call the anatomy of the tarot, where instead of providing a catalog, which is usually what happen, happens with tarot books, people take the 22 major arcanas and they go, this one means this and this and this and this, and it can also mean this and this and this and this. And in the end, what you have 
is a comprehensive uh, description of the psyche and the tastes and the opinions of the person who wrote the book and you don't have anything that you can actually work with on your relationship with the tarot and okay these books have been useful there's a lot of them around a little bit of the way of tarot is like that because we had to like sacrifice to that tradition but i think it's time for another kind of book so what i did was take the reader by the hand and guide them step by step first into the traditional iconography of the cards so that's what they mean and then how can you derive a modern iconography from this ancient iconography so if the chariot uh, arcana 7 in the tarot means the triumph and that goes all the way back into uh, the uh, uh, roman empire and if it is also a notion of triumphing over oneself in the Renaissance, it can also be a car today, or it can also be a screen on the television. So that's just for iconography. And I study the court cards in depth, but because the way I use them is a lot connected with characterology, so the Enneagram, the work of Gurdjieff, mm. how can we evolve from personality-oriented um, ways of looking at the world into role-oriented ways of looking at the world. Personalities, I, me, mine, my, my past, my wound, my, my reactivity, and it's important to know that, but the role is the great role of being the mother or the great role of being the woman who rides in the bus. How can I play this part of riding the bus when I ride the bus, you know? So the, the court cards really help us work in that direction. And then I introduce the whole numerology in the in the uh, the four suits, and this is very like this is the the lineage and inheritance of Paul Marteau and then Jodorowsky. I'm I'm situated in that lineage, where we consider the uh, coins, which are not the pentacles, thank you, as the expression of our needs, bodily needs, time, space, anything connected with health you know, money, but also with the depth of the sensing and the, the work in the cells and what you do when you sit in the Zen and what you do with the massage with the people, anything that goes through and out of the body and the wands or the sticks, they are the sexual creative, the chi energy, the prana, if you take it from the Hindu point of view, the breath, the essential breath. So how do we work with the huge realm of this energy and then the cups are the heart and the feelings and the education in order to be able to truly love and of course traditionally the sword is the mind but we could also call it our symbolizing faculty because gestures come from the sword like a true ritual gestures they're a language like the parables of christ they're also a language so we have these four languages the body the we would say the the sexual and power area the heart and the and the mind and the cortex and we reread the whole tarot from the perspective of how does the numerology in the four centers apply and connect with the court cards and the major arcanas and there you have a whole architecture that's what i call the three bodies of the tarot the pip cards will tell you where to act what you know how can i diminish this where is my leaning point where do I have leverage? What is this all about? Very precisely. The court card will tell us how to move into one realm in a way that supports our adult growth. 
how do we interact with ourselves and other people. And the major arcana can sit back into their role of being the word of the teacher, the word of the being, the word of that within ourselves, which is not going to die and was never born, which is the essence of who we are. So that would be the second part, like a walk through all the realms and, and landscapes of Tarot, which I have organized in a pretty, um, in a very academic way, but it reads like a novel. And in the at the end of the novel, exactly as you would know the characters and the settings of the novel, you know the Tarot. So then I have another chapter that is about practicing the Tarot, where I give a lot of reading examples, but also a lot of ways of practicing with the Tarot in movement, in theater, in music, observing the cards, meditating with them, like a whole world of not just reading the cards, and I give a lot of examples. And then, of course, there's a little like 10 pages, 10 pages where I give keywords for every card, because I know that for a beginner, it's very important, but just keywords so that the person can, you know, really learn to observe and make their own opinion. And the very last part is a, um, a study of the uh, cards by numerological levels. So instead of going like one, like, you know, the 22 major arcanas and then the minors, etc. I talk about the world and the, like the fool and the world, which are like the framework of the numerology. And then I go level one, level two, level three, which includes the majors, the minors and and uh, the quad cards. So it gives the notion of like linking the cards together, but it also gives you a reference when you do a reading. Did I forget something? So you can go and refer to that part, but it's not just a catalog. I think I summed it up. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Sounds beautiful. I can't wait to, I can't wait to read it. It's going to be hard for me in French, but I'm going to yeah. make my way yeah, through it. Yeah, but you can also travel through it. You can also pick, you know, I love making books like the way of Tarot or the book on, on the family tree where you can also open it up by chance and see what it says. Oh, it yeah, has, like it's, it's got, it's going to be hard work for the translator because the first part is extremely academic because that's my background. And in the rest, there's like very colloquial expressions. There's the jokes. And then suddenly there's a very uh, like spiritual or devotional mood. I decided that I would put all of my moods in the book because that's the way I teach. And I like to be very serious one moment and very precise and very scientific. And then the next second, I just, you know, tell a joke or I just talk about something from everyday life. It's livelier. And my, my fear, because it took me years to write it and then I had to correct it you know on the proofreading and everything and anyway so I was sick of it really last summer just before it was given to print I was like oh I can't stand it anymore and my students started reading it it came out in February and they were like wow it reads so easily it's easier to read than the way of Toronto I was like thank god <laughs> I was so afraid that it was going to be boring or something, but apparently it's a good read. It's a page turner. That's a celebration. Yeah, That's I love that. Celebration. Mm. So I wanted to get your opinion or insights on the nature of the human mind to really function in terms of symbols. Yeah. Because so, I, yeah, I sort of, I don't see humans as separate from animals or any other part of reality, really. So the fact that we do function in terms of symbols is curious to me. I think it's very interesting. Well, I think we produce 
shapes that have meaning to us, shapes that can be words, that can be, you know, physical shapes, that can be movements. And these shapes have a certain level of universality, like a dog shaking its tail. We don't really know what animals do or don't, by the way, because, you know, animals produce patterns when they court each other or when they want to signal something to each other. So there's probably a faculty of symbolization also within animals and even, you know, ants or, but we just, we're just so <laughs> certain of our own, you know, dominant value that we don't necessarily look at it. And plants also emanate, you know, perfumes and things. But to come back to humans, we produce shapes that have universal meaning and value. We produce and we recognize shapes that have value within a limited uh, group of people that those would be like cultural symbols and we also have a repertoire of more individual symbology and that's exactly how the tarot works some of the tarot that's part of the study that i did has especially in the major arcana they have like images that belong to christianity pre-christianity that can resonate with uh, the iconology of like the Tibetan world or the Indian world. So obviously there are symbolic shapes and organizations of shapes and numbers and, and words that are way beyond one culture in particular. And these kind of structures and shape resonate within us with a sense of harmony. Exactly like, you know, there were those like um, experiences made where you they went to Amazonia or, or other places that were remote at the time and they had the native people listen to Mozart and they would like close their heads and just like go into this trance. So there is something that that touches any human heart, we would say. And that is one of the studies that we do in the Tarot. And then there is knowing the cultural value of some symbols. For instance, the hanged man in the Tarot, it has a an origin, which is that in the Italy of the Renaissance, if someone had fucked you over and you could not actually bring them to uh, trial, you would have them painted by someone hanging by one foot. And it was called the infamous painting. And you would like put those paintings in their city and it was a way of getting even with them or signaling that they had um, like, yeah, done something wrong to you but it was also an easy way out for them somehow. And so little by little, the hanged man has become the symbol of both uh, being uh, uh, punished and it's not that bad, you know? So it does have a uh, cultural background in terms of the symbol and we have to know that. And one of the things that the Tarot does, and it's very interesting, is that it helps us shape our inner harmony in terms of the symbols. We have favorite poets. We have favorite painters. We have gestures that move us to the core and others that don't. Uh, I mean, for me, for instance, since I went to India, I'm tempted to, in, to eat in the Indian way. And I tend to leave my left hand on my knees when I eat if I don't, you know, <laughs> watch myself because in France it's like so important. I don't know why. Why to hide your hands. Yeah, it's kind of, it's like, 
it's inside my body in some way that I don't even want to try to explain. I don't know if, you know, past lives exist. I don't know if I've received memories from something. I don't know if my, the shape of my body has recognized something that has deep, that gives it deep comfort. And likewise, when I was visiting some of the pyramids in the Maya, Yucatan, um, 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 like holy places, I started climbing the pyramids in certain patterns. And then when I spoke with Maya uh, experts of like ancient rituals, I realized that my body had obeyed the architecture and started basically climbing the pyramid the way it was supposed to be climbed, even though I'm much taller than, than the people of those times were. I'm, I'm like five, seven and a half and they were like five, five or something, you know? So this sense of like having a, a field of form, uh, touching us, interacting with it and that it is a non-linear, non-rational, non-analytic kind of process. It's very deep. It, it has a deep resonance with the human being. And it's one of the ways that help shape our own specific way of producing beauty, which is not necessarily on, in, in a labeled artistic form, but one of the things I've learned from Alejandro Jodorowsky and which I still cherish in my heart is he used to say most of the ailments and sicknesses of the world are produced by the lack of beauty. And that's the lack of surrounding oneself with beauty and also the lack of acting out the beauty that we can act out. And there's a very um, great sp American spiritual teacher who is now deceased, who was Lee Lazowick, uh, who was the spiritual son of Yogiram Surat Kumar, the, the, the beggar saint of India. And Lee ended up, I mean, his dharma at the end of his life was to sell sacred art to people who were actual practitioners. And so he would rescue Buddhas and statues from India and he would sell them. And sometimes at very expensive prices to people who were actual practitioners. And he had this motto of like, surround yourself with beauty. And it is part of what, if we want to speak in a religious manner, what pleases God or what supports the earth. I mean, nature produces beauty. Nature is beauty. So now that we're, talking about, you know, saving the earth, there is this sense of being able to resonate with whatever we sense and feel as beautiful. And I think part of the rebirth of the tarot, which I can observe in the last like 20 years, has to do with that. People are struck with the beauty of it. And beauty always mm -hmm. has a sense of truth to it. It's tricky because now people make themselves you know, quote unquote, perfect and, and they make themselves uh, like symmetrical and stuff so that they can be trusted. But we shouldn't be fooled by the pornographic society. We know that it's a trick. I hope we do. I do. Uh, but I remember, I, I remember at some point when I was in my 30s, realizing that I tended to trust people who had more beautiful features in a room. So we need to know that, not fall for that but use that in a way that is informed and adult and also use the tarot as a device of beauty. Beautiful, beautiful, thank you. So how, what, last question, last question. Sure. So how can we bring 
wild orgasmic wisdom to the tarot or tarot to wild orgasmic wisdom. It's the same thing, I guess. Well, you should tell me what wild orgasmic wisdom is. I, it sounds very sexy, <laughs> but I need a little bit of context here. So, uh, it's a new concept that I created and I'm stepping into. And yeah. well, it's not, it's not a new concept, right? It's a very old concept. Mm -hmm. But for me, wild orgasmic wisdom is really all of reality. It's the mm -hmm. fields. Um, as I've done more and more inner work and especially working with sex magic and just kind of feeling my own energy, I got to this place where I had the impression that the entire universe is in a constant state of orgasm, mm -hmm. um, even if it's just like this very gentle pulsation of energy. Yes. And uh, even though the word orgasm has this really heavy, heavy um, in the pornogra pornographic concept uh, of our society Discharge, yeah yeah it's, it's this very sexual term that you know on Facebook I can't even run an ad because my business is called wild orgasmic wisdom but that's part of why I choose this because I really want to push yeah. that border and I want to push that understanding of orgasm as not just this thing that happens in our genitals but this this breath of nature and of reality that's happening at any time that we can tap into and explore so well, the first thing for me that's very clear is that the tarot has the wands. So it teaches us, like very few teachers do, Gurdjieff did. Gurdjieff really had this sense of the what he called the motor center, instinct, instinctive and motor center. Um, that this, exactly what you described, this way that we are creatures from the creation, and that the creative, what I call the creative energy, that has for me, working with the wands has both the sense of coming to terms with one's desire, but also coming to terms with one's frustration, because this sense of pulsation that you're describing is also expansion and contraction. And I worked a lot, like in the last 10 years, on the feminine and all the things that were emerging at the time. Now it's more like common knowledge, but like the possibility of the orgasmic uh, birth, uh, child childbirth, uh, the notion that the contraction of the uterus is not something that woman suffers, but it really is something that uh, informs woman about her core and that it, it, it needs to be educated into, yes, sure, expelling menstrual blood at some point, and it can feel like a cramp, and it's okay because the cramp is a sensation, it is energy. Of course, if it is a relaxed and breathing cramp, and that it can also be uh, educated into participating in, in deep orgasm. This is a very technical, I mean, way of stating it, but it's very true. And that this quality of like pulsation within the, the uh, inner cave of the uterus is what is actually described as, you know, the center of gravity. It's something that the feminine has in itself and, and, and there's a re-education into living it in the embodied way while men have to do the golden uterus passes of Castaneda or practice a martial art mm -hmm. in order to access that space within themselves that the prostate is kind of a um, indicator of, let's say. So first and foremost, I would say that in reading the Tarot, you very directly address that center of the wands because it comes out in the Tarot and that it informs the whole of Tarot. For me, it's one out of four. We are the 
we are the creative energy of the universe, which you call the wild orgasmic wisdom. We also are the love of the universe, that would be the cups. We also are the, the intelligence of the universe, that would be the swords. And we are the life itself of the universe. And that would be the ecstatic gratitude of the coins, which are not, I repeat, are not pentacles. And so... <laughs> So, you know, all four energies, which can also be found in the yoga, Anamaya Kosha, the, the, uh, the sheath made of food, which is like the body, Pranamaya Kosha, made of breath, Manamaya Kosha, made of individual feelings and impressions, and Vijnanamaya Kosha, made of um, uh, uh, truthful statements and observations, which are the four gatekeepers to Anandamaya Kosha, which is bliss. Bliss, mm. including that orgasmic pulse. The way I, I, I feel about what you say is that because it has been the absent element of most um, theories and most uh, practices, you bring it back verbally. But that pulsation that you describe, it has intelligence. I mean, I would call it an integrated orgasm. It has love to it. It has intelligence and clarity to it. It has embodiment and and sense feeling to it and it has a sense of sacredness and and ananda bliss satchit ananda being consciousness and bliss to it and i would say that the tarot is absolutely connected with that because we can work with it with words but we can we can also breathe it i have a tarot that's like two meters high it's black and white it was made by a Peruvian friend who's an artist who removed all the color information from a Jodorowsky tarot and printed it out as a giant tarot for me. And of course, it needs 144 meters because it's, you know, you have to literally, I mean, no, it, it, needs, it, needs, it needs 24 meters in a row because it's like 22 times a bit more than one meter wide. So of course I cannot, I don't find a room big enough, especially in Paris, which is a horribly expensive city. When I, when I met Lorenzo who made it, he invited me to Peru and had this huge room. So the whole tarot was like lined up in black and white, human size. But what I do is I bring a couple of cards and I paste them on, on the walls and I create like a, a reading, like, you know, I, for instance, when I presented my book, I put the Wheel of Fortune, which is closing a cycle, and then I put Force, Strength, which is opening a new cycle, and a little bit further, I put the World, which is like the ideal end of that future cycle. And the room pulsates around the beauty of the cards. And so one of the things I often do is like give workshops with people breathing with the tarot and then without words, enacting the tarot. And it's very interesting because even the French who are so stuck up, I mean, I don't do it just in France because I would die, but people start to move around and breathe and play. And I put toys in the space and they start playing the cards. And in the end, you have a living reading because some people embodying some cards meet people embodying other cards. And they actually create a reading strategy or a reading choreography that makes sense for others. So I would connect it that way with, with the notion that it's not only verbal, right now we're talking because this is a podcast, but that the words are pointing towards a direction of an ecstatic practice. Wow, 
Beautiful. That's so beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting <laughs> me. It's an yeah. honor. Yeah, I feel so blessed and I'm I'm just so happy that I get to share this with other people and yeah, yeah thank and you anybody, so much for this gift. If anybody listens and knows of a structure that gives classes online that wants a French teacher talking about the Torah of Marseille in English, I am available. I really want to do that. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think we should organize it, if, uh, if nothing sure. else. We should Let's organize it. I think it would be fantastic. Let's do this. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank Have you. a beautiful you. day. And, and where can people find you if someone wants to I to have a website. Marianne in one word dot com. Okay. I have Instagram Marianne Costaro. <laughs> it's called. I have a Facebook page which is Marianne Costa fiction character because I don't really believe that this woman actually exists. <laughs> so I'm kind of easy to find. And if if you if you Google me from a country that's that that's not in Europe and I might not be as well known because I think there's a lot of Marian Costas in Brazil, for instance, you just type the name of Jodorowsky right next to mine and you find me somewhere. So it's not <laughs> that difficult because he's really, really well known. <laughs> I'm Googleable. Yeah. I'm an object. I belong <laughs> to the pornography, but I just don't to participate in it. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much and, and best of luck with this project. Con el alma parada a un dulce recuerdo que lloro otra vez.